0: Our scripture reading is from Genesis 1, verses 26 through 30. And this is found on page 1 and 2 in your pew Bible. And if you do not own a Bible, please take the one that's in front of you home with you. Uh, It would be uh, great. It would be our gift for you. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens... I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, and everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Good morning, and let me just add my welcome to Mickey's. Uh, We're so glad that you're here this morning. Uh, My name is Bill Gorman, and I serve as the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus, and we're delighted uh, that you're with us uh, worshiping this morning. Whether this is, yeah, your first time that you've been with us, you've been with us a long time, and especially if you are new, and this is your very first Sunday, so thankful that you've come and walked through the doors of a church. It's a hard thing to do uh, for the first time, so thanks for doing that. Thanks for being with us, and Hope that you feel welcome here with us. Um, kids, if you're uh, with us this morning, I um, want to invite you to, if you don't already have one of the Kid Connect sheets, this is a great resource to help you follow along with the sermon, and uh, parents on the back, there's even uh, questions for the ride home and things to do throughout the week to help uh, bring the ideas of the sermon into the life of uh, your kids throughout the week. So we have that available, we'd love to um, make that available here each week so uh, grab one of those if you are here and you're a parent or a child well we're in this neighborly love series thinking more about how do we actually love our neighbor serve our neighbor and uh, I want to begin uh, our time by asking for God's help as we look at his word so let's do that now Father um, in heaven you are a God who is created and we just heard Mickey read that and you created by speaking and you continue to speak and make a covenant, make a relationship with us through the promises that we find in your word, the Bible. And so I pray that this morning that we would hear from you afresh in these words of Scripture, and that you would teach us and encourage us and challenge us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, does God care about getting things done Does God really care? Is it spiritual to be productive, to create, to get things done? Those were questions that kind of came to me in that, at least that level of clarity uh, when I first read the book, What's Best Next by Matt Perman. And that book has ended up having a pretty massive influence on my life. But I need to back up a few steps to let you know how I got there. Because if you were to ask me that question earlier on in my life, does God care about productivity? Does he care about getting things done? I think I probably would have scratched my head a little bit and said, well, I guess. Maybe not really. Maybe a little bit. Um, But I probably would have said something, well, like Christians should think about this. And that's good for like business and for the workplace. But should be careful not to get too much focus on productivity so that doesn't distract us from, you know, the really important things like reading the Bible and praying. But then I went to college and then into seminary and then into the world of of work as a pastor, and I realized something, that I had a lot of stuff I had to get done, and I I needed to figure out a way to, to get it done. And I remember especially in the first couple years working as a pastor, The stress was mounting, and I was taking on more and more uh, balls, trying to juggle them, keeping them in the air, and and realizing there was ones that were dropping on the ground, and I wasn't even noticing, and I needed help. And I found it in a little book called Getting Things Done by David Allen. Has anyone read Getting Things Done, David Allen? It's one of the best books on, on productivity, about workflow. And David's not a Christian that I know of. I don't think he's writing from a Christian perspective, but his work is really helpful. And it was incredible to helpful to me, and I began to feel better about life, and fewer things were getting dropped, and I was less stressed. But even as a pastor in those moments, even with all the theological training I'd had, I didn't really view that increase in productivity or a new workflow as anything that God particularly cared about all that much in my life. I mean, yes, I come to a place where I thought that the work I'm doing matters to God, but that productivity, how much I got done each day and and how I streamlined that work or not, I didn't think God cared too much about that. Okay, so now back to what's best next. So three or four years after I had discovered David Allen's little book, How to Get Things Done or Getting Things Done, I saw a copy of of Matt's book, What's Best Next? And it was the subtitle that immediately grabbed me. It was how the gospel transforms the way you get things done. And, and I heard in there that echo of, of getting things done by David Allen. And I was like, oh, I got to read this. David Allen's himself with me. I wonder what Matt has to say. And so I, I ordered it. When it arrived, I devoured the book. And what helped me most, what, made, what was so transformative for me Was not necessarily the the tools and the techniques that that Matt outlined in the book for getting ahead of email and kind of organizing your time, though those things were really helpful. But what was really transformative was seeing for the first time that we are made, designed, created with productivity in mind. If you want to be fruitful, excuse me, if you want to be faithful, you have to be fruitful. That if you want to be faithful, you have to be fruitful. And Jesus talks a lot about Christian bearing fruit. I mean, John read for us John 14, those passages that talk about fruit. And, and yes, that means good works, caring for the poor, serving one another, forgiveness, patience, all of those things in the fruit of the Spirit that, that we read together. But if we understand the, the whole of Scripture from, from Genesis chapter 1 all the way through to the end, we see that fruitfulness doesn't just mean good works, it also means good work, doing our work well. And last week we began a new series on neighborly love, wrestling with how love ought to fuel all of our work, and it ought to be behind the flourishing of, of all people and the global economy. Neighborly love, it's a call to action, to to serve one another, compassion that requires capacity. We saw this in the story of the Good Samaritan. We also saw it last week in the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church at Ephesus, where he calls the Ephesians to no longer steal He says, instead of stealing, which is economic injustice, he says, we should do honest work, making a profit from our labors. That's economic fruitfulness, so that we can have something to help those in need. Economic generosity. We learned that work in and of itself is a good thing. Whether you get paid or not, whether you like your job or not, whether it's at home, at an office, at school, So last Sunday was meant to lay the groundwork so the foundation for all of us as we continue to try to connect Sunday to Monday, to connect our faith and our work and, and even economics, the broader way that we cooperate in our work together. And this morning, we're going to dig a little deeper into the specifics. And I want to begin where the Bible begins in Genesis chapter 1. So I invite you to turn there with one of the pew Bibles or look it up on your phone. I want you to look at this text with me. And as we do, we're going to see that you and I were designed for fruitfulness. We were designed for fruitfulness. In fact, we're going to see three things. That we were created to be creative. We were created to be productive. We were created to be redemptive. Created to be creative, productive, and redemptive. Which means that if you want to be faithful, you have to be fruitful If you want to be faithful, you have to be fruitful. So first, we are created to create. Genesis 1 reveals the the foundation for a Christian understanding of the world. And this morning here, even if you don't consider yourself a Christian, if you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, getting a few things, um, understanding a few things about Genesis 1 is really important. Um, Why? Because uh, two things. I think one, Genesis chapter one undergirds so much of the history of Western thought and civilization. So if you want to understand your culture and context, it's good to have a few handles from Genesis one. Also, uh, you know, several billion people around the world, Jews and Christians, take this as their starting place. And so we want to understand the world we live in. Having a a bit of an understanding of Genesis one is an important thing, even if we're not Christians. So what do we find in Genesis chapter 1? We find this, this song, this poem, recounting God's creative work, how he's made the world. And now there are a number of different ways that faithful Christians who have a high view of the Bible read Genesis chapter 1. And again, especially here if you're, a Christian here, if you're not a Christian here this morning, don't, don't let a particular understanding of Genesis get you hung up as you try to understand who Jesus is. Start with Jesus. Because the main point of Genesis chapter 1 is that God made everything, and he made it good. And on the sixth day, he, he fills the land with animals, and he creates humanity in his own image. And look for that word image as I read a couple of these verses again. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Now, there's more packed into those two verses than we could really talk about in probably a month's worth of sermons. But what undergirds, what we see here, is this idea of image, this language of image. It occurs three times in just those two verses. And it's the foundation for our entire Western civilization's understanding of of human rights and human dignity. So what does it mean to bear God's image? Well, at the very least, it means that we can connect with God and we can reflect God in the world. Being made in God's image means that we can connect with Him, have a relationship with Him, and then reflect Him, represent Him in the world. Connection and reflection, they're meant to go hand in hand. Now, because of our rebellion against God, our connection with Him has been broken. And it's also shattered our ability to reflect Him in the world, but it hasn't destroyed it completely. This is our greatest poverty. Economist Brian Ficker, who was here with us a couple weeks ago during our CG 2015 conference, talked about this, that, that he actually defines poverty not first in material terms, that mat- poverty isn't first and foremost a lack of money or a lack of stuff. But poverty is first and foremost relational. Poverty is broken in relationships between God and between fellow human beings. And as a result, God's reflection is, is diminished and now, thankfully, because of Jesus, that's being restored and, and redemption is possible. We're going to get to that. But that's who we were originally created to be. God is our creator. And as image bearers, as people designed, created to connect and reflect him in the world, we are designed to be what J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbits, called what he calls being sub-creators. We're created to be sub-creators, created for creativity, I think you see this when you watch children, especially really young children, at play. It's hard to miss this. The imagination, the joy of discovery. A box is is transformed into a spaceship or a house or a store. And actually, I think this is part of the reason why kids often like playing with the box better than the thing that came in the box sometimes. Because the, the doll that came in the box is just a doll. It's just one thing, but the box can be a thousand different things. Created to be creative. It's a reflection of who we are made in God's image. And so, and so think about the economics of this. Sure, not most of us are Steve Jobs or Yo-Yo Ma. But this is what work is created to be, isn't it? That, to be imaginative, creative. That in our work we're creating goods and services that make life better. For some of you, it's solving problems. For others, it's managing a team, for still others, it's, it's making um, items, handmade items to sell in a marketplace or online in a place like Etsy. And some of you build houses or raise children. Others of you start new uh, businesses that create jobs and new ventures that meet problems that, that aren't being met. All of these are ways to love your neighbor. And they're all ways that you reflect God. So as people made in the image of God, and that's everyone here, young, old, Christian or not, we are designed to create. It's in our DNA, it's who we're made to be. So create. Give yourself permission to be creative, to draw creativity out of others. It's, it's not wasted, it's love. Really the first person who opened my eyes to this was Andy Crouch, who was with us at another conference that we did a few years ago. And Andy's written and thought deeply about culture. And here's what he points out, that as sub-creators, we take what God has given us in the world and we make something of it. We make something new, something better. So for example, God made wheat. We could never make wheat. But we take wheat and then we make bread. God made grapes, but we make wine. God created sand and oil. And we take those things, sand and oil, and we make iPhones and iPads out of it, right? Because what is your phone but sand that's been melted into glass and silicone and oil that's been turned into plastic? I mean, it's amazing, right, that you can take a handful of sand and oil and then create a device like that. It's amazing, and yes, we've made bad things too, and we'll get there in a minute, but there's also so many very, very good things. And kids, it's kind of like God has given us this huge bucket of Legos. And we, we couldn't make the Legos, but once we have the Legos, and the possibilities of what we can build is endless. And when we do that and when we do it well, we reflect God and we love our neighbor. And I've seen this in, in Rachel, uh, in my wife. She works at making our home, our life, our food, our yard, just about anything she touches more beautiful. It's incredible she has the capacity to do this. And whenever I hear Rachel's tell to tell the story of how she came to Christ's community and, and fell in love with it as a as a really a high school student, early college student, she always talks about that. She's like this was the first church that I went to where I felt like there was an appreciation for beauty and creativity in and of themselves. And as a person who was so creative, finally feeling like, wow, like it really affirmed those things in me of who God had made her to be. You do this in your work as engineers, as project managers, as event planners, welcoming people creatively in hospitality, as teachers and parents and grandparents calling forth the gifts and talents that God has placed in your children that he's given you to love in your classroom or your home. We were made to create. If you want to be faithful You have to be fruitful. So second, and these things are certainly intertwined, creativity and productivity, but we're also created to be productive. We're created to get things done, to to do stuff, to contribute. And we see this in verse 2 and 8, that God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Theologians call this the cultural mandate. And it's the, really, it's the first item on the job description of humanity. And there's, there's five imperatives, there's five commands there. To be fruitful, to multiply, to fill up the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. Now, clearly we've distorted distorted these commands along the way. We've taken subdue and dominion as license for destruction and value extraction rather than value creation, even though in just the very next chapter, in chapter 2, God defines those things as cultivating and keeping God's good earth, not ravaging and polluting. How we care for creation, the world that we've been entrusted with, really does matter. But we've also distorted the be fruitful and multiply part a bit. Because certainly it is about having babies, about filling the earth with human beings. But it isn't just about making babies. And we often miss this. I know that I have. Because you see, the Hebrew word there for fruitful is the word para, which includes both procreativity, having babies, but also productivity, getting things done, being fruitful in our work. And it's used in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, for all of those things. And it's often intertwined. Because back then, procreation and productivity were really closely tied together, right? If you're in a farming kind of a economy, you have to have people to work the farm. And this is still true today, even in more uh, Western, sort of non-agrarian-based economies today. In places like Japan... One of the biggest concerns economically in Japan is the, there haven't been enough kids born in the last 30 or 40 years, and there's a concern for the future workforce Will so there'll be enough people to support the work in the economy. So fruitfulness is both procreativity and productivity together. You see this in Deuteronomy chapter 28 where there's a blessing on the fruit of your womb and on the fruit of the ground and on the fruit of your cattle. So while having babies is certainly important, Many of us have made an idol of it, and pastors and churches have often contributed to that and inadvertently, unintentionally marginalizing those who are single or who are unable to have children. And I know that along the way I've, I've contributed to that, and I just want to say I'm sorry, because there's such good news here. Because according to this, everyone can fulfill the cultural mandate and the command of fruitfulness, whether you're young or old, single or married, able to have children or not able to have children. We may not all be procreative, but we can all, we must all be productive. So produce. If you want to be fruitful, you want to be faithful, you have to be fruitful. If you want to be faithful, you have to be fruitful. And think about it, productivity and fruitfulness are linked, even when you walk into the grocery store, right? We call fruits and vegetables produce. Fruitfulness is productivity. I love what Matt Perman in What's Best Next, I love what he says about this. He says, to be productive, in fact, glorifies God because when we are productive, we are not only obeying him, but imitating him. I love that. We're not only obeying him, but imitating him reflecting him to the world. Does God care about getting things done? Yes. And when the Bible talks about good works, it doesn't just mean helping someone change a flat tire. It doesn't mean less than that. We ought always to do that. But good work also includes answering email, attending meetings, putting the kids to bed, mowing the lawn. These are all good works. Part of the good works that God has called you to do, it matters And he really cares about those things. And you should too. And while fruitfulness is certainly more than creativity and productivity, it's never less. For in it we reflect God and we love our neighbors. It's in our creativity and our productivity It's one of the primary ways we love our neighbors through our work. And here's the thing. You actually might make, and most of you do make money in doing that. And that's okay. In fact, it's, it's kind of how God has designed the world to work. If you look at the book uh, Common Sense Economics, which is if you want a short book just on how to think about economics, it's a great little book. It's a great read. Not, it's not a Christian book, but just great economic wisdom. Listen to what the authors say. This is fascinating. They say there's a moral here. If you want to earn a high income, you'd better figure out a way to help others a great deal to put another, another way, if you are unable or unwilling to help others, your income will be low. Let me just read that again. There's a moral here. If you want to earn a high income, you better figure out how to help others a great deal. To put it that another way, if you are unable or unwilling to help others, your income will be low. Now, of course, as soon as we say that, we have to say there are abuses, there's broken systems. Of course, there are exceptions to that. And of course, profit is not the only bottom line. But you hear one of the most basic principles of economics there. Do you you hear that? That the best way to make money is to figure out how to help other people, how to love your neighbor, to be a good neighbor. Which means we need to quickly move on to the next point. Because as soon as we start talking about the, the goodness of making money in church, I think all of us can get a little bit weirded out, right? Maybe. Because we know, and, th- and there's a good reason for that. We've seen the abuses, right? We live in a broken world. We, we know what greed does. A lot's happened between Genesis chapter 1 here and then Genesis chapter 3 where we rebel against God and take all of the goodness faculties and abilities that we've been given and we distort them and use them for for wrong ends, wrong means. And that's why it's so important to remember we were created to be redemptive, to use our creativity, our productivity to redeem what's broken. Because every job is broken, every system is broken, every system of economics is broken. But there's always hope. There's always hope. Because the gospel speaks into everything, even this stuff. You see, what theologians call fruitfulness, economists call wealth, which can make us uncomfortable, right? Because either we think of wealth as sort of the chief end of man and we give all of our lives to its pursuit, or we condemn wealth as somehow inherently evil. We, we misremember that verse that says the love of money is the root of all evil. And sometimes we think, oh, that money is the root of all evil. But, but neither of those things biblical or redemptive. Rather, the Bible teaches that wealth, that fruitfulness is a gift to be stewarded, used responsibly for the good of others, which means that, that making money is good. Managing and creating wealth, fruitfulness is good. Creating jobs, adding value to the world is good. And it's not just a good thing that's, oh, if it happens to happen, that's fine. It's it's a command. It's part of how God has designed the world to work. It's what we do with all of the money that we've been entrusted with that matters. Another basic principle of economics is also a biblical principle rooted here in Genesis 1, and that's this idea of value creation. We often think of wealth or stuff or material as a zero-sum game, meaning that, that if I have something that, that you can't have it, that my riches necessitate someone else's poverty, that there's only so many pieces of the pie, and we just need to cut it into smaller and smaller pieces so everyone gets their share. Now, obviously, we're called throughout the Scriptures to be generous to those who are in need and to share. But ultimately, the goal is, is to have more pies, to make more. Remember, in the garden, there was abundance and flourishing. And economists of every political, sociological, theological stripe agree that economics is not a zero-sum game. And we see it in Genesis that wealth creation has this exponential dynamic. It is about flourishing, about exponential growth. That our creativity and our productive work done well continues to multiply the value of what wasn't there before. Grain to bread, grapes to wine. Value being added, not just value being extracted or taken. And that value isn't just distributed, and often it's distributed unfairly, but it's actually being created by constantly more and more good work. Even just think of this: over the time that, that we human beings have been created and placed on the Earth, we've gone from two people now to the population of the world is 7.3 billion. But that's been exponential growth, right? Because a hundred years ago in 1915, there was only 1.8 billion people. I mean, let that sink in, I and mean, that's exponential. In 1968, the best-selling book out of Stanford University, The Population Bomb, said that there was going to be mass starvation in the 1980s due to overpopulation, which didn't happen, but rather the opposite. In fact, over the last decade, more than a billion people have been lifted out of abject poverty. And obviously there's still a lot of work to do. And yes, we have made mistakes even in that process as we've figured out how to make crops have more yields. But here's the thing. There's now a billion image bearers who are no longer in, po- in poverty. How is that possible with the scarcity of resources? You see, it's possible because every image bearer brings creativity and productivity. And in the free market economy, it's the, which is the best of the bad systems that we have, jobs create more jobs. Creativity spawns more creativity. That's why almost all the economists disagreed with the Population Bomb book when it was published because they said, look, people are going to find ways to extract and create rather new value that we can't even imagine yet. And it happened. And more people are able to flourish as a result, to be fruitful as God originally designed Redemption is possible, even for broken people in broken systems. So redeem. Make something beautiful out of the ugliness. And there are some tensions when we come to this, right? There's the tension, one of them is between laziness and workaholism. Because I hope you see, after we spend a little time in, in Genesis chapter one here, why laziness and sloth are so such a terrible sin. Because if you're lazy, slothful, you're actually rejecting God's first command to be fruitful, to multiply, to be productive. You're denying what it means to be human. You're refusing to love your neighbor because when you don't work hard at your work, you're actually robbing your neighbor of the good things that would come from you bringing your full creativity to it. Let me just say, yes, there are times when work is awful. And you're stuck in a job that you hate. And and even in jobs that are the best, you talk to people who absolutely love what they're doing, there's still hard days, right? There's thorns even in the best work. But on the other hand, listen, if you're a workaholic, you're also missing it. Because work is not meant to be our identity. Our success is not the measure of who we are in the workplace. And you'll never accomplish enough to feel like you've really Arrived. I love how Tim Keller says this. He says, if you make work your savior, your success will go to your head and your failure will go to your heart. When you're succeeding, you become prideful, and when you're failing, you're crushed. The other tension I so often feel is between selfishness and generosity. Because I like me a lot, And I like to hang on to the money that I have and buy the things that I want to buy. I think that's true for most of us. And yet we have to remember that compared to the rest of the world and compared to people throughout history, you and I in this room are incredibly wealthy, even if we don't feel like it compared to the people in the next neighborhood or zip code over. And there still are a billion people who don't know where their next meal is coming from. And so I'm always compelled and challenged by the words in Proverbs. This is Proverbs chapter 30, where the author says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor And steal and profane the name of my God. Isn't that interesting reasoning? He said, Look, God, don't give me so much that I forget who you are and just become totally self reliant. But don't let me be so poor that that I have to steal and dishonor you. There's a lot of wisdom there, isn't it? And if we can avoid extreme riches and forgetting God by eliminating extreme poverty, then we must. Because ultimately our wealth, the fruits of our labor, is not primarily for us. We're stewards. We've been given it to manage. So enjoy God's blessings. He's given them to you as a gift, but know that they are a gift to be managed, not to be hoarded. Use your wealth, your fruitfulness to create jobs, to feed the poor, to support your church, to make good choices, to love your neighbor. Are you using your wealth to love your neighbor or to love yourself? Are you using the fruits of your labor to love your neighbor or to love yourself? See, if you want to be fruitful, you have to think through these categories of creativity, productivity, redemption, Because you can only be faithful if you're fruitful. If you want to be faithful, you have to be fruitful. But you know, this can't just be a lecture on Genesis or a talk on basic economics. Or even just good advice on loving your neighbor. Because, because that's not what we do here. We don't pretend as a church that we can fix ourselves or a world with just some better morals because Genesis 3 happened. We rejected God and everything fell apart. And You and I will never cease to swing between laziness and workaholism towards self-indulgence and generosity. We are broken and every system that we live in is broken. And that doesn't get fixed by good advice. That only gets fixed by good news. And the good news is that God has not left us to ourselves, floundering with our job description, that he's come and he offers forgiveness for our constant failures, but also motivation and empowerment and joy for a life of fruitfulness. Jesus died for all of this, for you and for me and for every problem and every complexity, and he rose again to offer us life and hope that this won't be so hard, that one day he will make all things new. We have to realize Jesus was the most productive being in the universe and is. The Bible actually refers to Jesus as the second Adam, that that Jesus accomplished all that the first Adam was supposed to accomplish, all that you and I were supposed to be and do. Jesus has done. He has succeeded where we have failed. And as we put on a new self in him, the image, Colossians says, of Christ is being renewed in us our ability to connect with God and to reflect Him in the world is being restored. You see, the only way to be faithful and fruitful is to find your hope in something other than your faithfulness and your fruitfulness. The only way that you're ever going to be truly faithful and fruitful is to find your hope in something other than your faithfulness and your fruitfulness, to trust in the One who is faithful and fruitful for you to place your hope in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you have created us with the ability to create and produce and that you're redeeming us. Thank you for your word that challenges us and shines lights into to dark places of our heart. I know just even as I reflected on the, this question of am I using my wealth to love my neighbor, to love myself, I was convicted anew. Forgive me, Father, for how I have not managed my money well. I've used the gifts that you've given me well for the times when I work half-heartedly. Pray that you would forgive us for those, forgive me for those times, and give us new energy and new life and new motivation to understand if you've called us to use our work for the good of others and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.